Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Receive now today's reading. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot. While I was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. You can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas, Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear and promised him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for Lent this year, we're going to be going through the end of Mark, reading Mark's accounts of Christ's passion, leading us all the way to Easter morning. In this particular Lenten season, I want us to focus on things we give up or give away, and what we receive in turn, return. So I want to ask you this question. What, what's the most you've ever lost? What's the biggest loss you've ever endured? And in that loss, what did you get? What did you gain from that? And I want to caution us because the natural third question we ask after that is, was it worth it? I was talking to someone from FCC after service who heard what you're about to hear. And he said, when my wife passed, I, I gained mushrooms because she hated mushrooms. And there's, that's what I caution against, is that's, that's not a fair trade, you know? The, the good news, that what awaits him on the other side is being reunited. That's where our ultimate hope is. I just want to point out that when we give up and lose something, what, what comes to us can be as, as trivial as mushrooms, uh, but can be deeper as a wisdom, as deeper life experience, of a deeper appreciation of the life we have, of um, what enduring a trial on the other side can produce all kinds of, of character, um, character that is part of the reason why we don't ask, was it worth it, is because how do you compare loss with virtue and character? Um, those are not quantifiable or on the same plane of things. When I, my best friend died when I was 20, uh, Mark Brown, Amy. And Jeff, did you ever get to know Mark? No? Um, he had an undiagnosed uh, heart condition. Um, Bobby Duke, he died in Bobby Duke's arms. Um, Bobby Duke is Paul Lennon's neighbor. Literally died in his arms in a college dorm room. And we had the memorial service uh, just over a week later and it was way too soon for us to process the loss. We were still in shock. Uh, the idea of 
of even going to a memorial service and, and having that be helpful. It was just, it was too soon for us. And I remember standing in the sterile narthex of our home church that we'd grown up in and um, just overwhelmed with grief. And this well-meaning lady came, squeezed my arm, and said to me and to us, God must have a wonderful plan for you boys if he took Mark home so early. And then she walked off thinking she'd been helpful. And I remember not responding, but everything inside me, I, I remember thinking to myself, um, well, then he should have taken me. Because I do not want to live up to any idea that my life could balance out that loss. I want us to remind us, and I know I'm starting heavy, um, but this is Lent season. This is a season where we contemplate death, sin, the gravity of the brokenness of this world. This is a day that begins with being marked by the cross, having imposed on our foreheads and being told, from dust you were made, and one day to dust we will return. And I say this also to remind us that death is the enemy of Christ. It's, it's what Christ defeated on the cross. Um, and to remind us, too, that, that, that God doesn't use death as one of the tools in his toolkit. He doesn't cause things in that way um, so that he can produce something else. When, when Paul tells us in, in Romans that God, um, that all things, God works all things for good to those, oh, actually, this is a little spoiler for Romans 8, so act surprised when I preach this sermon in, in mid to late May. Uh, but N.T. Wright thinks that the, the, the proper translation, he makes a compelling case, that the, the better translation is God works all for good with those who are faithful to him. See how that changes that, that we work with God to bring good um, out of even the most tragic of, of circumstances. When, when Lazarus was called out of the grave, Jesus grieved and wept and cried out so loudly that the crowd stopped their weeping, looked at Jesus, and said to one another, look at how much Jesus loved him. So as we begin our Lenten journey to the cross, as we remember the seriousness and the gravity of what Christ came to destroy once and forever, the guiding verse I want us to consider as we look at these verses is, is found in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. So Hebrews 12 comes after Hebrews 11. You're welcome. Seminary degree uh, at play here. And in Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews writes out the heroes of the faith and all the way that faith was translated into faithfulness, that they were faithful to God and, and then ending with, and they never got to meet Jesus. They pointed to him, but they never got to meet him. And, and how much more so do we, having known Christ and, and what he accomplished and the finality of his work, how much more can we endure? And then he says, he or she says this, the writer of Hebrews is unknown, so he or she writes this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
I know that we are acquainted with weariness and the temptation to lose heart. And the writer gives to encourage people like us, trying to live faithfully amidst um, pain and loss and grief, saying, consider Christ. Put your eyes on him. So this Lenten journey, what I want us to do is fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. On the other side of what Christ endured was the cross. Uh, Was the cross. On the other side of the cross was the joy waiting for him. And what allowed him to endure was the hope and promise that knowing that on the other side of all of this grief, trauma, and loss is joy. And not to spoil the ending too much, you are the joy set before him. Reconciliation with his creation is the joy. The defeat of death, the eradication of sin, once and for all, is the focus of Christ's ability to endure all that we're going to read over the coming weeks, over the next six weeks of Lent. So, and, and what Jesus, that exchange for joy, that, that, that exchange on the other side of what we endure is the promise of joy and, and all that we lament against being gone forever. Um, you know, it's, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like somebody who's going through life and sees a field, and in that field is a treasure, And this person knows that if I buy the field, the treasure's mine. So, sells everything, buys the field, and it's with great joy because the treasure is worth emptying everything we have to obtain. That is the joy that Christ endures to all that he suffered. So, in this passage, what is Jesus releasing? We're going to look through each week and ask the question, what does Jesus give up here? What is he releasing? What is he surrendering? As he goes to the cross, he is giving away more and more and more until he is stripped of all of his clothing and robbed of his very life. What does it look like in each step of this journey for him to, to give away? Um, it is the last week of Jesus' life. He knows this is the last week. Everything he says, including our call to worship, is focused on this is it. This is what I have to say before I go to the cross and um, and endure the cross for the joy on the other side. And he is with his disciples, and, and I want you to picture, we're going to do an exercise at the end, so begin the work of picturing Jesus in a home, probably on the floor, surrounded by his disciples, um, talking, and in walks a woman with a very expensive jar of nard. I want to compliment you. When, when the word nard was read next door at FCC, there was audible giggles. Right? Do you hear that, right, Jack? It was very like, wow, some, uh, uh, I didn't expect this from FCC. Good for you guys to have, a, to have that response, because uh, I just try not to giggle when I hear that word. Um, you know, but that's because I watch Goonies so many times. But anyway, so she breaks a jar of a very expensive perfume, which immediately floods the room with its aroma, and begins a very intimate uh, and very countercultural touching of Jesus in his head um, in ways that make people feel very uncomfortable. Now, we're not told explicitly in this text, but we are almost certain that this is Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet while Martha worked around her and was honored at another time. Our girl Mary gets, gets some criticism for her following of Jesus and her insistence on her own dignity uh, as being considered a disciple of Jesus. And the way that others 
call that out, tell her she shouldn't be doing that, she doesn't have the right to be a disciple, and Jesus consistently defends her. I think some of you that have endured criticism for, um, for who you are need to hear Jesus' defense of you in that, of defending. Leave her alone. A stern rebuke to them. Some of you need to hear Jesus say on your behalf, leave him alone. Leave her alone. Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, hanging on his every word. Mary, who, when her brother died and it was announced, Mary, the rabbi's here. Jesus is here. She's unable to get up, so lost and locked in her grief that she's unable to go and greet Jesus, grieving the loss of her brother. Mary, who, in the garden on the day of the resurrection, is going again to anoint his body, and, and it's missing, and she's in a horror. Where have they done? Have they desecrated his body? What, what has happened? And he's, she sees a gardener, and she says, Sir, please just tell me where he is that I might touch his body again, that I might put these, the, this uh, oil to soften the, the scent of a decaying body. And, um, and he looks at her and says her name, and she realizes this isn't a gardener. This is Jesus, and, and clings to him instantly. This is Mary, and this very intimate act of, of, teaching, of touching Jesus' head, of, of massaging into his head the, the oil, the fragrance of it, anointing him over and over again. And the, and the disciples are shocked and horrified. Can you see their shock? Can you see their contempt and disdain? Um, can you see the language they're doing it? I'm, um, have you... I don't know if you've read Jonathan Haidt um, and, or have, know the idea of the rider and the elephant. And he says, the, we think our rider is the rational mind and our emotions are the rider on top of that. And so the elephant is, is our rational mind and we go where reason dictates we go. And our emotions sometimes can try to pull us, but it's a temptation. He says, no, 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 no. Your elephant is the emotions. And every once in a while, your rational mind can have a little bit of impact on it. And in this moment, I think the rational mind is saying, they should not. This could have gone to the poor. I, um, this, could have, this money could have been spent to, to feed a lot of people. This is worth a year's salary. And, and we know from other references in Scripture, the person that had the biggest problem with money is Judas Iscariot. And we also know that this is the moment that Mark, as I say, Mark marks. Sorry, I'm going to say it. That Mark marks as the final straw where he goes to essentially conspire against Jesus, which will lead him to the cross. And you also may have noticed that money was part of that too. Uh, as Jesus said, the love of money is the, sort of all, is the source of all kinds of problems here. But I don't think that that is what's happening here. Because Jesus defends them, he calls them out a little bit, and he's like, if you're so concerned about the poor, they're all around you. You can go and give to them at, at any time. They're, they're always there. If that's your concern, do that. But if you're talking about what she did, she's done something beautiful. She, and I love this phrase, she gave what she could. You know, that's what Jesus asks of us. Give what you are able. She gave what she could give. And that will be talked about at restoration in 2024. That's how much this mark, wherever the gospel is preached, that this story will be continued to be told. Why are you bothering her? Why are they bothering her? What's their deal? I, I don't know. I think they were just made uncomfortable. Um, there's, um, honestly, if I were to put a name to it, I think it was the rage of Cain that they had given a, that she had given a sacrifice that Jesus was receiving and that they could see in him that he was receiving that. And there's something 
a, a, a deep rage in them that they put, they put, you know, they could have gone to the poor. You know, they're, they're putting language on it that I, I just don't buy it. You know, I, I buy that they said it. I don't buy that that's what's really going on here. Because uh, anointing is a sacred act. You know, you know the story of, of David's anointing. When he was, um, Samuel was told by God, uh, I, I reject Saul, uh, I'm going to call a new king, he's the son of Jesse. Why don't you go to Jesse's house and anoint one of his sons? And, um, you know, he presumed, he probably didn't ask which son because the assumption is obviously the oldest son, the, first, the firstborn. Uh, he's the one that deserves um, to, this is, this is a, like the template for succession. And so he goes in there, and, and uh, it must be this one. He's, he's a strapping, good-looking guy. And like, no, and they go down the line, and, and eventually he's like, I don't understand. Are these all your sons? Because it's not any of them. And they're like, well, there's David. Well, go get him. And, of course, he's anointed there. And it's just there's an inversion of that story here of, of uh, instead of the anointed, famous, known prophet of Israel, it's, it's a woman. And instead of being in sort of setting up a, a kingdom that will never be taken away, which is the promise of David. It's, it's Jesus days before he heads to the cross. It's in, um, everything is, is turned upside down, as, as is often the case when the gospel is, is preached. And so in that moment, when you think about receiving, what is Jesus surrendering here? What is Jesus giving up? When you think about um, what is it? Well, let me, let me just tell you my story from last week. It was my birthday. And um, I, I don't love the attention of birthdays. I don't, know if, I don't know if any of you, when you receive a gift, your first thought is not, oh my gosh, this is so touching. Thank you. I, I'm so blessed. I love this. You're so kind. Or, so, or your immediate experience of that is of a debt. A debt that you now must repay. Now that I've received this gift, I have to give them a gift for an you know, equivalent thing, and then I have to play it off like, I'm not, this isn't because you gave me a gift. I was going to do this anyway, but here's, you know, here's this sort of thing. You know, it's, it's really hard. You know, in my marriage, I'm greatly out, outmatched in my gift giving by a wife who is attentive and gives wonderful gifts. She comes from a, a long lineage of great gift givers, and I'm, um, I, cash is king when I give gifts, but here's the, my, my point is, is that what Jesus names the inability to receive a gift when he washes the disciples' feet. And he says in that moment, unless you allow me to serve you, you will have no part of my kingdom. And then Peter, you know, always good for laughs, like, well, then wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, you're missing the point, you know, uh, as Peter often does. Um, but in, Jesus receives a gift from her that he allows, he doesn't say, save some of that for yourself. You may need that later. Um, this, is, this is more than I need. This is too extravagant. Spread it to the other. He simply allows her to express her love um, for him and receives that from her. And it's a reminder of how, I think, deeply formed we are in an age of consumerism. And when we talk about the bottom line, what's the bottom line? Well, whenever we hear the bottom line, it's, it's always money. There's always some kind of exchange at play. And this is a reminder of Jesus receiving something given, receiving something from her, um, of allowing himself to be served and honored in that way. And of course, Mary's given something up here too. She is giving something that is very, very costly. She's exchanging 
something that she could have used to her own benefit. She could have used to, and leveraged it to, to get a loan. It could have been collateral. She could have, in an age where hygiene just was not up to our standards, we'll just say that, that this is something that could have allowed her to, to, to mask and cover up the sense of her own body. I, just, I wonder if there's something in a fragrant and saying, I'm not going to use this to cover up my own stench. I'm going to give to Jesus. That is, is another reminder of what's about to happen and the exchange that's about to happen on the cross, where Jesus takes all of our shame and sin upon himself uh, and gives us um, forgiveness and everlasting life. She does not know what she's doing. When Jesus says to her, what she's done is beautiful, she's anointing me for burial, she'd probably have been like, hold up. No, I'm not. That's not what's happening here. Um, I am a, I'm giving you an, an, an offering of gratitude and, and thanksgiving to you. Um, she, she doesn't know why she does what she does. I think there's just she's formed and shaped into the kind of person that recognizes a significant moment and responds appropriately. I am going to give you what I can. I'm going to give you what I have um, to, to Jesus. She does not understand, perhaps, what Jesus sees. But Jesus receives it um, in ways that, that greatly multiply her intentions. There's a multiplication there of she didn't do that in order to be talked about for generations to come. And wherever the gospels preach, she would never have wanted to be elevated to that kind of status. That's just not what we know from what we see in, in Mary's life from the Gospels. She doesn't understand, but Jesus understands and sees it from a different angle. Like any performance art piece, there, it speaks to Jesus in ways that are deeper, more than even probably her intention. He is heading to the cross. He's going to a place where he will give everything, everything away. He's heading to a place where at any time he could say, that's enough, stop, and could have stopped the, the words coming out of the accuser's mouth could have stopped at any time while he was slapped, spit on, whipped, uh, hammered to the cross. At any time, he could have stopped it. He could have said, no, I am the anointed one of God and called down angels. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And Mary, in some way, intuitively understands what's happening and joins him in his suffering. And in some ways, this is the template for Lent. Could Ma does Mary's sacrifice equate to Christ's sacrifice? No. But in sacrificing something, does she understand what's happening in a way that's deeper than anyone else around her? I would say yes. That the act of joining Christ in the release of something, of giving something of value to him, is joining and participating what God is doing all around her, even though her understanding is very, is insufficient to what is about to happen around her. <clears throat> but the joy of giving to Jesus, the joy of finding some tangible, physical way to use her body and her pocketbook to express gratitude towards God, is the joy of giving. It's the joy of releasing. It's the joy of Lent, where we consider ways that God might be calling us to give something up, something, something that, that's costly, something that hurts a little bit, in order to exchange that for the joy that is set before Christ, of learning from Mary what it looks like to, to enter into a Lenten season, where we are connected and participating in what Christ is doing as he heads to the cross. So what I want us to do 
as we close is I just want to invite you to imagine the scene. Imagine Christ on the ground teaching whatever you imagine him doing with his disciples when it's interrupted by Mary coming in, smashing the jar. Just picture the smells, the sights. Look at the disciples. What are they thinking? Put yourself among one of the disciples. What are you thinking? Take a moment just to contemplate what that would have been like to be there as we close and head to the table. I know when I've, I've done this, I, the first thing I picture is the disciples' shocked and self-righteous faces contrasted with Jesus' face of seeing her and understanding what's happening. I picture Mary only looking at Jesus, not looking at the critics around her, not even hearing what they have to say, but hearing Jesus defend her and acknowledge what she's doing and then multiply it more than she could ever understand. I picture her smashing the jar on the ground. All of that very expensive, very fragrant oil filling the room. So she massages it into Jesus' hair. And the thing that strikes me is imagining her face and the tears streaming down it and wondering, what's behind those tears? Is it joy? Gratitude? Picture Jesus as she receives that, as he receives that, and that deep sense of Jesus being seen, acknowledging that, this holy, sacred moment. May Lent be a season for you of entering into the joy set before Jesus. May we learn from Mary together what Lent looks like as we join Christ on the road to the cross. Lent is a time of sackcloth and ashes, of repentance, of acknowledging that Jesus didn't go to the cross because of their sin, but because of our sin, because of, of my sin, my need for that. But in that, in this Lenten season, to remember, as C.S. Lewis once said, joy is the serious business of heaven. And even in this Lenten season, the serious business of God's work is joy. The joy set before Christ that allowed him to endure suffering at the hands of sinful men. So come to the table that Jesus has set for us. Come knowing that you are the joy set before Christ, that we might be connected to God again. That God might restore all of creation back to himself. And as you return to your seat, consider Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of your faith, who endured the cross for the joy set before him, so that whatever you are facing, wherever it is that you have, that you can give, that you will be united with Christ in his suffering, just as you are united in Christ in his joy. Let us pray. Fathers, we come to the table. We are mindful of this is the moment that we are remembering, this moment Christ facing with courage the cross and with joy of what lies on the other side. This Lenten season, as we come to the table and as we prepare to be blown away again by the resurrection, the good news, may we prepare for that this Lenten season by fixating our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. In his name we pray. Amen. Come to the table.